Welcome to Spun on Safety, the program designed for safety professionals. Spot on Safety is brought to you by iWorkWise, providing safety knowledge when you need it. For more information about iWorkWise, go to iWorkWise.com. Welcome to Spot on Safety. Episode 7, Immediately Dangerous to Life and Health, with your hosts, Amy Does and Dan Smiley. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dan. At my last class that I was teaching, we ended up spending a lot of time discussing IDLH, or Immediately Dangerous to Life and Health. And... We were discussing it as it uh, surrounded mounting an emergency response for uh, an ammonia release. So at what point um, do we have to don SCBAs? When do we need backup teams? And a lot of this revolves around the definitions that are provided in the HAZWOPER standard, but there isn't a good definition of IDLH within that standard, at least not that I have noticed. So I thought maybe this would be a good opportunity to, to discuss that a little bit and give some people some insight into exactly what OSHA considers to be immediately dangerous to life and health. Yeah, it, so, it sounds great. This is a kind of interesting subject, surprisingly, um, where these numbers came from and how they're being used and when they're required. And yeah, in the HAZWAPR standard, OSHA, actually, they define IDLH, but it's kind of defined differently than in other standards and also differently from NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, um, who, who does a lot of the research and sets the IDLH. So in, in the HAZWAPR standard, uh, OSHA defines it as an atmospheric concentration of any toxic, corrosive, or asphyxiant substance that poses an immediate threat to life or would cause irreversible or delayed adverse health effects or would interfere with an individual's ability to escape from a dangerous atmosphere. Well, how do you know what that is for the chemical? They don't, they don't give you the number or refer you to a book or refer you to a chart or anything in the definition under HAZWOPER. So, again, we need a little secret knowledge here, a little behind-the-scenes you know, depth in the safety field to try to figure out you know, where do we get these things from. And often they're listed on MSDSs. I've seen them listed incorrectly. Um, and, uh, and certainly they're listed uh, in references by NIOSH because that's really where they came from. They were, they were first worked on a little bit in the 40s even and, and contemplated in the 40s, but they weren't developed until the 1970s. Um, NIOSH is the one who sets the IDLHs, and uh, NIOSH doesn't make law. So they, they do research and set these things, um, but they're not enforceable just because NIOSH uh, has set them. So it was 1974 when NIOSH came out with their IDLHs, um, and they, they, they studied 387 different substances uh, in an effort to, to do that. And it's when you dig in, it, it's, uh, it's not as tight as you might think. Um, for exactly what these numbers are and what they should be. How they came about it was um, was through various means and, and using various tools and really estimations and even animal studies and whatnot. So, um, it, you know, without human data. And 
frankly, they're still asking for data on IDLH. So IDLH means immediately dangerous to life and health. Um, and it's we, we talked about the definition uh, by OSHA and the HAZWOPER standard, but it's commonly uh, accepted that the definition is, is it's not a one breath and you're dead level. It's a, it's a level where after 30 minutes, you may not have the ability to escape from that atmosphere. And these are basically have been set up. So if your respirator fails, you can get out. So they're, they're not, uh, it doesn't mean that the environment is really toxic in the way of one breath and you're dead. Um, there is quite a safety margin in there where you could be in there for 30 minutes, up to 30 minutes, and still escape under your own power after your respirator died or, or ceased to work. So, of course, they don't want you to do that. Um, the safety margin as your respirator fails, you get out. But um, You don't just reach down and start the stopwatch on your, on your wrist. <laughs> oh, my respirator failed. I, got, I have 30 minutes now. Yeah, so it, no, they, they don't really want you to do that. So, uh, you know, there's there's all the safety margin built in. So supposedly, I mean, even if you're in there another 30 minutes, you can still get out without keeling over or uh, having long-term adverse effects. So these these numbers are kind of interesting. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's kind of reassuring if your respirator does die and you're exactly at that level, you have a little bit of time. But the other thing that IDLHs do is they are always the point where you have to choose a more protective respirator, or the you know the most protective or the most most reliable respirator. So they've been used um, by these regulatory agencies like OSHA as uh, a limit for um, when you need to take more precautions and choose more protective respirators. So the rule of thumb and what you know the, the number that. The, the things that I always say, you know, that's, this is the number at which you really have to go to an SCBA or an air-supplied respirator. Positive pressure, yeah. pressure demand. Uh, it's the it's the point at which we we need supplied air. Right. We need a reliable respirator. We're not going to have breakthrough on our cartridges, or they're less likely to leak in some cases. Um, and of course, with positive pressure respirators, it's a it's a higher pressure inside the face piece than the atmosphere is, so nothing can get in because things don't travel that way. They don't go from low pressure to high pressure. So only things come out, things don't go in. And so, yeah, that's, that's where we're going to start seeing the um, positive pressure requirement for supplied air respirators is at these IDLH marks. And that's good news for all these guys who don't like to shave every day. They're going to go through their bottles faster because they're going to not get as good a seal and it's going to leak around there, but they're not going to be contaminated. They're just only going to get 10 minutes out of a 30-minute bottle. Yeah. So, you know, we're, you, you were asking uh, about IDLH and where these things come from, you know, and we can get them off the MSDSs, but like I said, I've seen the, uh, the manufacturers not be as up on the latest IDLH as, as, as uh, I think they should be. Um, NIOSH uh, revises a book called their Pocket Guide to, ha to Chemical Hazards about every five or six years, and that's where NIOSH publishes um, the newest IDLHs. And there was some revision in, in 1994 on many of the numbers, so those numbers actually changed. So, 
if a person is interested in IDLHs or a company works a lot with hazardous chemicals, this little pocket guide for $25 um, is a really good buy. It has um, the current information and some background on that that information. So if you really want to know the IDLH, you can look it up online at NIOSH's website or you can get this NIOSH pocket guide to chemical hazards. I'm looking at the NIOSH guide to chemical hazards right now. and It's amazing how many of the chemicals in the IDLH column say ND or not determined. Yeah, it, it it really is astonishing when you start digging into it. The NIOSH pocket guide has chemical information or health information on 677 different chemicals. And NIOSH has only determined, it was only looked at 387. So there are many chemicals in there um, that it doesn't ha has a non-determined or ND rating in the NIOSH guide. Um, and also even out of the 387, you know, there are, are 22 substances where it lists unknown. They just don't have uh, the kind of information they need in order in order to come up with something. Um, also, there's carcinogens. You might see in the IDLH value a CA, meaning the materials are carcinogens, so probably you should choose the most protective respirator anyway because the problems with that chemical are going to be chronic. The other designation you could see is 10% uh, LEL, and that that kind of means that the immediately dangerous to life and health level from the toxicity is actually higher um, than its explosive or flammable range safety margin so that you would use the lower explosive limit um, and consider it immediately dangerous to life and health at 10% of the lower explosive limit, not a PPM or a parts per million uh, designation or a, you know, some other measurement. Since NIOSH is not a regulatory agency, how how does IDLH or does it anywhere have the force of law? Do I have to abide by these IDLH numbers? Oh, this is a funny way the government works in this particular area, and a great question. You know, there was a letter of interpretation in 1995, and uh, the it, you know it's from from OSHA, and it can be. Uh, looked up online at the OSHA website, and OSHA basically says these, these not IDLH guidelines are set up by NIOSH, but NIOSH is not a regulatory agency, and they are not legal standards. However, it, if the company has evidence uh, that can rebut the NIOSH standards, and evidence is a pretty strong word, if they have evidence that can rebut the NIOSH standards, OSHA would weigh that evidence and determine it on a case-by-case -case basis. But if you don't have evidence that could rebut plausibly the NIOSH IDLH, then the NIOSH limit is what OSHA is going to use. So they're saying it's not required, and then they're saying it's required unless you have evidence that is plausible. So I don't know who would assemble evidence and what they would accept as plausible evidence, but that seems way over and above what most employers are capable of providing. So kind of in a this default kind of way, there's no regulation, um, you know, certainly listing those and requiring them and saying they're mandatory, but they're accepted as mandatory. So, and they're also referred to in the respirator protection standard. So if I'm an employer and I have employees that are, are working in a chemical atmosphere and I've decided that for whatever reason 
the IDLH provided by NIOSH is way too restrictive. My guys, they, they don't need a respirator to work at those concentrations. Uh, I've worked in concentrations higher than that for years. It's all, that's just silly. And then a guy is, is injured badly or dies. And now I have OSHA investigating. And I end up going to court. It's really... It would seem to me that that is the level at which I now have to prove by providing evidence that I knew better about what level of contaminant was IDLH than the NIOSH. It seems to me that, that only in post-accident investigation would I be, provide, would I be required to make that argument. Do you, do you think that's the case? Or um, if people weren't wearing the right respirators and you had an ocean inspection and they did sampling during that inspection, and that um, it could also come up that way is, you know, they, they knew the concentration was higher, your people weren't in the right respirators as determined by an IOSH, um, you could get it that way too. But I think, I think you're right. I think primarily you're going to run into it uh, once there's been some kind of injury. Or now that you mentioned the inspection, uh, the, the extension of that, I guess, could be uh, uh, a worker makes a confidential complaint to OSHA, who then follows up with an inspection because they, they have this complaint to go on. Sure. So, and so, they, hey, they're making me do something that's not safe, and they, they say that it's fine and that they can do this. Oh, and that happens all the time. But, the, you know, your good luck on trying to come up with some plausible rebuttal for NIOSH, unless you're a test lab facility of medical, you know, experts um, and can put a lot of money into studies. I mean, when, when NIOSH came up with these IDLHs, they looked at uh, published human acute toxicity data um, and looked at numbers that people were exposed to and, and they didn't die after, you know, before 30 minutes is up. And then they looked at the animal acute lethal concentrations and tried to, you know, when animals inhaled the substance, uh, like rats or monkeys or dogs or cats or whatever, and, and uh, you know, they're the government. They could assemble a, a large bank of data and know where to go to get this stuff. Um, and then they'd look at uh, lethal doses if, if animals swallowed its substance um, and when they died. And then they'd look at chronic toxicity data if there wasn't any acute toxicity data. So it just keeps going and going and going as far as how much they dug and how much research they put into this. And so there could be some institutions or even associations that have the money and time and uh, research ability to rebut an IDLH. But for the common employer, um, IDLH may as well be law because it, it becomes, I think, practically impossible to uh, rebut them. So, Amy, I've seen both 10% of the lower explosive limit and 25% of the lower explosive limit listed in different emergency response plans as the action level for evacuation. I know the 10% of the lower explosive limit is listed specifically in the confined space standard. Where else are these numbers referenced, and what is the number that I need to use as the drop-dead, get-the-heck-out number? 
this is one area I think is kind of interesting and also vague, and, and any company would have to do a bit of research to get to a number. So that's probably why there's confusion is, of course, in the confined space standards, both in the shipyard and general industry, it, it describes a hazardous atmosphere as being above 10%. But uh, in the spray booth uh, standards and the paint, paint booth standards, uh, ventilation standards and dip tank standards, um, you would need monitoring and the alarm would go off at 25%. So you'd be evacuating from 25%. So I've talked with people at OSHA and one of the uh, interpretations is perhaps in these 10% situations, which is in confined space, you have difficulty egressing. And so there's a bit of more of a safety margin in the confined space standards than in these other standards. And in 1990, there was a letter of interpretation to a Rockwell environmental engineer that, that basically says, for the definition of emergency response to be satisfied, the situation must pose an emergency. Examples are, it may cause high levels of exposure to toxic substances, it's life or injury threatening, um, employees must evacuate the area, it poses IDLH conditions, um, it poses a fire and explosion hazard, which they define as a potential to exceed 25% of the LEL. So, there are a lot of those numbers out there, and none of them. Um, there's nothing specific in the in the Hazwapper regulation that says what the uh, that basically defines hazardous atmosphere as it relates to to fire hazard. So probably the closest thing we have is this 25% in the letter of interpretation. But we do have to understand that letters of interpretation aren't law, um, and there's some precedent for some other 10% numbers, and, and maybe due to the PPE people would be wearing in an emergency or their situation, um, that 10% might be better, or uh, maybe just because they may not be testing at the uh, at the point where it's highest. They may just be on the approach, and so you maybe you're over LEL a little further along the way, and they could certainly be in a, a hazard area. So. It's, I've seen it both ways. I normally write it up as 10%. Um, I think with people's, uh, you know, how good they are on the detectors um, and also if they're actually using correction factors that need to be used sometimes when you calibrate to butane or pentane um, or, or, excuse me, methane or pentane, uh, there, there are correction factors for other gases. So you put all those things together and 10% is a little bit of a safer number, but there's this 25% number out there um, for uh, LEL, and uh, I guess we don't really have anything definitive. You make a good point about the limitations of the monitors that you're using. You know, the difference between pentane and and uh, methane as a calibration gas, the correction factor can be as high as 0.5. So a person would really have to be aware of that. And it assumes that you are measuring flammability for a gas that is provided on the manufacturer's list that has a correction factor. And, for example, ammonia, the hazard that we work with so often, is not on that correction factor. So exactly what you have, whether you're using a methane-calibrated instrument or a pentene-calibrated instrument, well, who the heck knows? To my knowledge, there haven't been any any tests done. There's no table I can go to. If there is, I'd certainly like to get my hands on one. Well, and 
you know, it might depend on what substance you're working with, too. I mean, the, uh, the LEL level of ammonia is so high that making it 10%, I mean, you're in a pretty saturated environment, so it probably doesn't hurt your response that much. Um, where if you're dealing with just a, the vapor from a flammable liquid, um, you know, 10% might not be that, that much. So, you know, there's all these considerations, and it seems like people have plenty of room to hang themselves with this because there isn't a lot of uh, clear, there, well, there isn't a clear regulation on it. There's some guidance um, that can be sorted. You know, um, one other thing it brings up, Dan, is this, uh, when you're working in an IDLH environment, one thing that's, that's fairly clear is the respiratory protection standard um, provides that the employer, uh, for some, anyone working in an IDLH environment with an IDLH respirator, um, you would need not only the person or persons inside, but you would need at least the person or persons outside as backup. So if you're working in IDLH conditions in a non-emergency, it's one in and one out as your minimum. I think that's frequently misunderstood. And when your situation meets the definition of an emergency and you're in emergency response mode, or if you're, you're firefighting, um, structurally structural firefighting, then it would be two in and two out as a minimum. Hey, all right. I think that is, I think that is greatly misunderstood. Is there anything else that you can think of that pertains to the idea of ideal H atmospheres and response? No, I think we did it probably pretty good and more than what most people get into with IDLH. Um, and again, it run into one of those areas where the stuff is a little complicated and unclear, so hopefully it'll help some folks out. Oh, so default to the NIOSH guides uh, recommendations. You certainly aren't in a position to make other recommendations or provide proof that something else should be used. Uh, refer to the MSDS and in all cases... Uh, abide by that IDLH concentration number. It, that sounds like it to me. Well, thank you, Amy. We'll come back again, hopefully in a week. I know we had quite a long hiatus where we'll uh, get into something, hopefully, very interesting. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure as usual. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Spot on Safety. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can email us address is spotonsafety at iworkwise.com.